Hello, friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew. I'm here with Stephen, as always, and really excited to be joined by Kate Wallace Nunley, who's uh, joining us from the West Coast in Bakersfield, California. Kate, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, man. We're really excited to to have you on board. Uh, for those of you who don't know Kate, and I, I'll let her introduce herself in a moment, she's the co-founder of the Junia Project, also lead pastor at Wellspring Free Methodist Church. Um, and we're, we're really looking forward to talking to her about a number of things, uh, feminism, kind of women's roles, gender roles, theology of gender. Um, and, and Kate brings a kind of the pastoral as well as the academic background, has a master's in divinity from APS, um, and just we're going to hear all about her life, uh, but really excited to have her. Kate, would love for you to introduce ourselves, uh, or introduce yourself, excuse me, to our <laughs> listeners. Uh, who, Kate, who, uh, will you introduce uh, us, please? Yeah. Introduce us, please. Uh, Go on, to please who, tell uh, us more about ourselves, yes. Exactly, to those who don't know you, uh, please. Yeah, well, like you said, I uh, pastor a free Methodist church here in Bakersfield. I live here with my husband, Leaf, and our two little dogs, which we call fur babies. Yes. Um, yeah, and we're just plugging along in Bakersfield. Uh, my mom and I also founded the Junia Project, J-U-N-I-A Project, oh, which cool. uh, which is really fun. It's an online ministry. And so my mom and I live about two hours away from each other, but we can work together on a ministry because it's all online. Now, just to clarify, nice. not the Junia S project, right? There's, you dropped the S. Yes, I dropped the S. <laughs> a great <Yes>. question. <laughs> well, that might be a good segue and kind of a quick, immediate insight into 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 your yeah. interest. Can you tell us more about that project? Very cool. That you're doing it with your mom. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Uh, well, the Junior Project is an online ministry. Um, we advocate for the inclusion of women in leadership in the Christian Church and for mutuality in marriage. Um, we just believe that when the Bible is interpreted correctly, it teaches both men and women are called to serve at all levels of the church and leadership should be based on gifting and calling rather than on gender. Um, but the joke about Junia and Junius is of course, because we're named after Junia, the female apostle that's noted in Romans chapter 16. And there's been a historical debate on whether she was a man named Junius or a woman named Judia. And there's lots of things written on this. Um, but basically, Junius evidently historically has never been a male name in Greek. But Junia is a very common G Greek name even to this day. Hmm. So most biblical scholars today agree that she was a female and an apostle listed in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. So we thought her name was perfect for our project that advocated for women in leadership yeah that's <laughs> and kind great. of embody her story kind of embodied the debate that goes on for women who who have that calling that's awesome and so i understand you grew up in or maybe you can give our listeners a little insight into into the tradition you grew up in and then how did that inform uh or maybe not inform kind of your view of of you know, women's roles in, in ministry and kind of ultimately the inception of, of the Junior Project? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a non-denominationally Baptist church, <laughs> if you will. Um, my parents helped to plant the church. And because of that, it was small and it required all hands on deck. So I saw women do 
absolutely everything except for being the lead pastor. We had women serving communion and leading worship and mm. um, and preaching and serving on the elder board, doing everything because we needed everybody. And I didn't know that that was weird. I had no idea that Christians thought in a different way than that until I transferred to a private Christian junior high in eighth grade. And um, there they taught a more conservative view and they brought in the idea of gendered roles and they taught that anyone who disagreed with that was not a real Christian or was confused by culture, Wow, uh, which was very confusing to me because <laughs> I grew up in a very Christian family and right. extended family on both sides. And this was the first time I was hearing about this. Um, so yeah, that kind of started a, oh gosh, a study project from eighth grade through college, really, um, on what these two views, these back then there were really three that were prominent, patriarchy and complementarianism and egalitarianism, and trying to figure out what I thought was um, was true because, you know, as a Christian and a woman, women's roles was the primary thing I needed to figure out mm-hmm. because I didn't want to do anything that meant that I was disobeying God. Um So I went up to my parents and they are academics and they handed me three stacks of books and told me, good luck. (laughs) Again, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Good luck on your faith journey. Uh, Yeah, but they they also really helped me and walked me through a lot, had me talk to a lot of people. But yeah, so that kind of led me on the path to claiming being an egalitarian or believing in the full equality of men and women as based in the Bible. And um, it wasn't until... 2013 that we started the junior project, my mom and I, and it was really because, um, we were both working at Azusa Pacific university at the time. And the students who were coming in to the university seemed to have a really conservative view of gender roles more so than they had in the past. And, um, we come from a Wesleyan holiness tradition at Azusa Pacific. So we decided to just teach on the Wesleyan holiness view of women. And, um, and then the junior project just kind of started from that, from people who are interested in learning more and wanting to continue the conversation. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about the, the Wesleyan holiness view of women? Sure. Um, I'm by no means a Wesleyan holiness scholar, um, but it stems really from an Anglican priest named John Wesley, who, um, had no intention of breaking from the Anglican church, interestingly enough, but started a tradition called Methodism. And it was really just around the time of the Protestant Reformation. So he, he starts Methodism and it focuses on holy living and uh, right doing. So caring for the poor is a huge emphasis in, in this tradition but even from the beginning in various different denominations that kind of came from Methodism, um, women were teaching and preaching and traveling as evangelists. And it was just kind of something that's in the lifeblood of Wesleyan holiness tradition. Mm. So the, my understanding also, well, well, back to the timeline, sorry. So 2013, I think is what you said the junior project kicked off, but you're also a pastor. So how long have you been 
kind of for, formally in a in a pastoral role and what uh would love to talk about that more broadly yeah i've been a pastor a really long time like four months wow are you <laughs> in, in a row <laughs> in, in a, a row. row okay good yeah, is, that, is that cumulative <laughs> <laughs> no way that's exciting yeah my my husband and i um Shortly after moving to Bakersfield, where he's from, uh, we were contacted by our denomination, Free Methodist Church, and they wanted us to start a church. And we were like, no, 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 we're not pastors. That's not our thing. Um, Wow. And maybe six months later, they called back and they said, okay, we have a pastor for you. He's moving out from Texas. He's already Free Methodist. Um, Will you be on the team? He said, oh, God, no, not Texas. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, he was wonderful. Um, And he and my husband and I kind of formed this lead team and um, launched our church plant here. And about a year, a little over a year in, his wife, his wife is a doctor and her job got moved back to Texas. So he let us know that he was leaving and the crazy part about that was about five days before he told us that I was taking communion at our church and I was sitting at our little prayer station and I heard God say to me, I, I want you to step up and be more of a pastor. Wow. here." And I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, and by then I had already started seminary. Um, I only completed one year, so I don't have my MDiv yet. Um, I completed one year and I'm starting my second in January, but, um, yeah. So I, you know, I was just praying that whole week, like, God, I don't know what that means or looks like, but if you show me, I'll walk through that. And five days later, Josh told us he was leaving and that he had recommended me as our lead pastor. And that it had already been, that the superintendents had already said that they would support that. So, um, Yeah. So it's Tell, been since how, July, which is kind of crazy. So I imagine like it's been like 10, 10x attendance growth since you've stepped into the role. Yeah. How's your <laughs> <No>. stats? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, actually I'm curious that w- what sort is it? A, is it a small group or is it a, how big is the church? Yeah. Um, so we don't count every week. In fact, we always forget to count, but no one nice. in our denomination asks us for numbers. Mm. So um, that's probably why we forget. But our average attendance is probably around 50 adults. Uh, and then depending on the week, we have 15 to 25 kids. We have a ton of kids. That's awesome. Cool. So, but our attendance didn't drop at all. Um, which with the pastoral transition, which is really normal, even if it's not a different gender coming in. So that was really encouraging. And we've seen like a slow, steady growth, even just a similar growth as when our previous pastor was here as we continue. Going has it along. been controversial yeah. at all? Have you had, has there been any pushback with you stepping into the pastoral role? You know, what's really interesting is that um, with the junior project, we work a lot with women who are in pastoral roles and I have not heard one story that has been like mine. Um, most of the time women face a lot of, uh, a lot of pushback when they are placed in these roles, even if they're placing them from within, like if they had served as an associate pastor of some kind before that. Um, and usually you see a lot of people leave and there's, you know, 
not a lot of support from the denomination, even if the denomination tends to say they support women in ministry. But honestly, I haven't had anyone say anything negative to me. Our church was very excited. Uh, We did attract some people who were looking Mm -hmm. for that, um, too. So we did see a little bit of growth, not a crazy amount. Um, But even from the beginning, people, one of the things people liked about our church plant was that we had women in leadership. So I was, I served communion every week and was a part of that lead team. And they knew the junior project was behind the church. So that was actually one of the primary reasons a lot of the people came in the first place. So, so no one was upset about it. And uh, our denomination has been incredibly supportive. Um, So I have a really unique story, actually. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, that's, yeah, it is. Well, you know, in thinking about this conversation and kind of more broadly, the role of women, both in a ministry setting, in the home, in a marriage, um, in our tradition, at least, like, well, I'll speak for myself in, for myself in our tradition, a lot just kind of went unsaid. Like this is just sort of how it is. And I didn't really grow up with any sort of tension because there weren't really in my purview, any differing opinions. And it wasn't until later on, um, that, you know, for me personally, questions around, you know, can women lead or can, can women preach in church? Well, they can't preach. They can share. And mm-hmm. if they're up on stage, their husband needs to be there with them. Um, and, you know, maybe they can read like a passage, but they're not, you know, they definitely can't preach in front of men. Um, and then all of a sudden things start to, I don't want to say necessarily unravel as much as you all of a sudden have questions and then you're introduced to terms and thinkers mm. and authors, all, right? All of a sudden you're flooded with all this perspective and you realize, wow, yeah. there are actually differing godly big opinions on this. So I, it's a big yeah. conversation. So I say that to say, in order to kind of set a bit of a ground work here, and obviously we're going to fully cover the subject in a very short period of time perfectly. Um, not really, but, but hopefully you know, we can like get the ball rolling a little bit. When we think about just some of these core terms, egalitarianism, complementarianism, and we sent you a couple others via email. Could you just introduce us a little bit to the conversation, maybe some of the the differing sort of core perspectives and help to define some terms for us? Of course. Um, So this debate on the proper role and place of women in the church uh, especially in evangelicalism, the current day debate has go- been going on for about three decades, although it has been a topic of conversation and debate throughout the church since the Reformation and even before that. Um, but this current debate really in evangelicalism between complementarian and, and egalitarian theologies has gone on since about the late 1980s. Um, and on one side you have complementarian theology, which holds that men and women are created equal, but intended by God to have different roles and responsibilities. Um, And the distribution of these roles means that women will never hold positions of leadership in the church and requires the complete submission of women to the authority of their husbands. Complementarians tend to use terms like biblical manhood and biblical Mm -hmm. womanhood, if you've heard those before. And they teach that men have a special authority in the church and Christian community over women. Um, But on the other side of the debate, you have egalitarian theology, which also believes that men and women are created to be equal, but but believe that they are called to roles and responsibilities without limitations 
related to their gender. So gender does not privilege or limit any believer's calling to ministry, and men and women are equal partners in ministry and practice mutual submission in marriage. So your gender doesn't define your role in marriage or in the church. Um, Egalitarians don't use the terms biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Um, On the other side of that, they believe that the Bible teaches one definition uh, the Bible doesn't teach one definition of manhood or womanhood, but that it tells the stories of many different men and women who are all called and gifted by God to do different things. So both claim the the equality of men and women in worth and value before God, but one claims that the differentiation between men and women means men have authority over the other. Mm. Got it. Got it. That so makes sense. What's yeah? I know you mentioned the current debate. It's only been around for thirty years. Um, what historically, like, what what has the the broader historical conversation been like? What what was sort of the norm, and and what has shifted in bringing the current conversation uh, in into in, into I don't know today. Sure. Um, so. Back, It really goes back to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century and the various Protestant groups that broke off of the Catholic Church. Um, from those groups came thinking that led to things like Lutheran theology and Reformed theology and Wesleyan holiness theology. And all of those kind of theologies over time have morphed and grown and influenced and become many of the denominations we have today. And while all these denominations and church traditions hold that, you know, Jesus Christ, Son of God, lived, died, rose again, um, they differ on different things of theology. And they have since the Protestant Reformation. They differ on things like infant baptism and predestination and communion and their theologies of women. So this debate is has always been a clashing of theologies or competing views of of beliefs on how God chooses to work in and through God's people. Um, so just like any other theological debate, the role in place of women kind of falls in there. Uh, but since the Protestant Reformation, it's really been the debate between a patriarchal view of women and an egalitarian view of women. Um, hmm. Patriarchy, if like, if we want to define patriarchy, so patriarchal Patriarchy is a social system where men predominantly hold positions of power over women, whether it's political or moral authority or social privilege. Um, And patriarchal ideology is that ideology that aims to justify men being in charge and attributes that to, well, men and women are just different. Men are simply better at it than women and that kind of stuff. Uh, So patriarchy is men simply are better and are supposed to hold positions of power. So since the Protestant Reformation and even in the Roman Catholic Church before that, uh, patriarchy was the predominant view of culture and of the church. And Protestant Reformation brought this split where egalitarianism was introduced, this idea that men and women might be more equal because the Spirit of God doesn't um, discriminate. The Spirit calls who the Spirit wills. And the scriptures give us examples of women leading in the Old Testament from Deborah and Huldah 
and Esther to the New Testament of Phoebe and Priscilla and uh, Mary Magdalene and Junia. And so this idea started forming. It was softer in the beginning, you know, because the culture, the secular culture around was extremely male dominated. So for people to even conceive of a woman being fully equal was not in the 16th century was just Mm -hmm. kind of unheard of. Um, But the church, it was Christian women who really started that idea because the spirit of God within them was compelling them to preach about Jesus. Hmm. And even if you read like secular feminist historical literature, they'll say it was Christian women who first were the ones who spoke up. I didn't know that. Um, Wow. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, so for a long time, and, and it was Christian women who started the secular feminist movement as well, which hmm. is also very interesting um, because the conversation is usually, you know, talked about as feminism began in the 1960s and it was secular and right. it's infiltrated yeah. the church. But, but history teaches us feminism started in the 1800s and that it was started by Christians. Uh, so it, it's a really interesting History teaches a really interesting uh, story on that. So for a long time, it's been a patriarchal theology that God simply made men better than women. Men were supposed to be spiritually superior and physically and mentally superior, and women were inferior, which is why they were subordinate. And that was the prime, the dominant view versus, e- and egalitarianism was also there, this idea that men and women were equal or more equal than that idea. And that women could preach and teach and travel as evangelists. And that has grown to be uh, more acceptable and has grown in strength as culture kind of followed. But um, complementarianism was really came about in the 1980s, which I don't think a lot of people realize. Um, But... There was, in 1987, I believe, maybe December of 87, there was a group of pastors and leaders that came together and wrote the Danvers Statement. And it was a statement that really created complementarianism. Um, They wanted, they, they, in it, in that, in the Danvers Statement, they say, out of fear of, you know, the feminist movement and culture and, and all of these things happening with women's equality, we want to um, create a doctrine where we we make clear that we think men and women are equal, but just that that in church they need to have different roles and responsibilities. Wow. So, so that started complementarianism. It was kind of like patriarchy okay. light. Um, you know, kind of it's not going over well that we think that men are just better than women, so we'll say men and women are equal, but the outcome is still the same as if we thought men were better than women. We're still going to keep women subjugated to men and keep them from any leadership roles. Uh, so, yeah. So then for a while you had patriarchy and egalitarianism and complementarianism all kind of vying for people in the church's uh, uh, attention. But the patriarchal theology for the most part has kind of died down, at least in popular Christianity. That's helpful. Now, now forgive me. This is just my own ignorance here. I mean, we are the laity podcast, so I technically don't have to know this stuff, but <laughs> feminism, <laughs> radical feminism, womanism, I don't know how to, I, I don't, 
frankly, I really don't know what those mean, truly. I mean, I know how they're used, especially pejoratively in this context, like, oh, if this is the feminist agenda, whatever. Um, but can you unpack those terms for us? Right. Sure. Sure. Um, so feminism is a social movement, much like um, like a movement for racial equality. You know, you think of these people coming together in order to petition government for changes so that people are more equal. Um, so feminism is a social movement that started in the eighteen, the mid eighteen hundreds, and it it sought for the equality of men and women in society. So because before that, women were not allowed to own property; they weren't allowed to have custody of their children what? if their husbands left wow. them. They uh, yeah, it wasn't until the 1970s that women could get their own credit cards. That sexual harassment could be like the 1970s. The um, You've got to yes. be kidding me! It's amazing. So feminism fought for these kinds of things. It happened in three different waves. So 1848, you have the first feminist or women's rights convention that kind of launches feminism in the Western world. Uh, and it was really to get the right to vote because women did not have the right to vote. And at this time, also people of color, specifically African-Americans did not have the right to vote. And the, and the feminist movement was only for white women. So white women wanted the right to vote, which is often overlooked, but I think is really important as we look back to point out. So feminism started to get white women, the right to vote really middle-class and upper-class white women. Uh, and then that went on. I mean, they didn't get the right to vote, I think until 1920. So it was a really long first wave of feminism as they call it. Right. The second wave of feminism was around the 1960s and seventies, which is what a lot of people think of as radical feminism and radical feminism did arise in that second wave, uh, which is more a, a call for complete upheaval of society, radical reordering, of everything so that all male dominance is eliminated in every social and economic structure. Um, so they want to redo everything so that everything is equal. That's, that's the idea of radical feminism, but it wasn't the only part of feminism. The 1960s, there was a lot that was, like I said, trying to get women, their own credit cards, their own bank accounts, um, to fight against sexual harassment, to, uh, you know, lots of these things uh, we can thank feminists for. If you have your own credit card and as a woman, that's due to feminists. If you can get custody of your kids, that's due to feminists. Um, so, and even like today, feminists fight for things like equal pay for equal work. Um, so not all of it is radical. A lot of it's simply still that uh, social right. movement for equality. Well, that's, that, that's, uh, that's really helpful. I know I think it's important to I think it's really important to define some of the terms because like Stephen and I were talking about this yesterday. There are just oh, these gosh, trigger yes. words for some reason in 2018, right? Where it's like and fr- frankly, I think feminism is one of them. At least in what I'm observing, you know, radical feminism, feminism, and I appreciate like Stephen's humility, which is just the rea- but also just the reality of most of us don't even know what we're talking about, right? <laughs> so like you hear the term or you're upset about the term or you're, you know, retweeting someone, retweeting someone that's not in- 
they're just it just immediately it seems so polarizing in forget the church i mean just right. in in culture and in 2018 just america the world but then kind of shifting to the church right one of the in the church context, I guess to wrap my thought is in the church context, I think there's there's also just it just can immediately cause a defensiveness or a reaction. Um, and speaking as a white male I, that maybe def, describes myself as maybe a bit more progressive, I, I, I still like find myself reacting. Um, sure. Why do you think that is? I mean, wh- what is it both in the church and more broadly that causes just and, and you mentioned not having a ton of reaction personally, but kind of what, what is it that causes the, these terms and this subject to be um, such a trigger for, for, for people? Part of it is history. Uh, evangelicalism starts emerging around like just after the rise of second wave feminism in the 60s and 70s, you know, um, and 60s and 70s also had the sexual revolution. So a lot of things got mixed up together. And a lot of these radical cultural ideas that scared a lot of people in the church and a lot of it for good reason. I think, especially with the sexual revolution, a lot of that. Um, so our reactions to that in the church were, you know, keep it all out. Uh, don't let any of it infiltrate our, our kids. Don't, um, you know, like yeah. very protectionist. And it was around the same time as evangelicalism. And it was one of the things that kind of sparked evangelicalism into being, was kind of pushing back against this and the idea of individual, your individual faith and life being really important. Um, and there's a lot of benefit that comes from that theology, I think. Um, <clears throat> but so some of it is historical. Some of it is that when we hear the word feminist and we hear um, those kinds of terms being brought into the church, it makes us scared because our parents were scared by it. Our grandparents were scared by it. It was always talked about negatively in our families or in our church contexts, so we associate it negatively. Um, but I think another reason is churches, for the a large churches, for the most part, are patriarchal. They mm-hmm. lean towards men. They are male centered. Men. If you walk into a church you tend to see a man passing out bulletins or men ushering people to their seats. You see a worship band made up mostly of men with usually a man leading worship. A man gets up to welcome you and read scripture. A man gets up to pray. A man gets up to ask you for your money and men pass out or have you come up and take communion. And then a man, you know, dismisses you and you go out and eat food and drink coffee prepared Uh... by women. So our, our church experience is mostly male, and it has been for a long time. So when we hear about any movement that might put down men or at least put them down to the same level as women, it makes us really uncomfortable because we've never really, in church, everything is about men. Um, and men are the ones who mostly speak and men are the ones whose ideas we hear. I mean, even down to the point that most Bibles have been translated by men and that most um, in the English translations have been translated by men. So when we're reading from scripture, we're reading a male bias translation that adds male pronouns and things like that that aren't in the original text. So 
our Christian experience in church is heavily male, whether you're a woman or a man. Um, so anything that challenges that is highly uncomfortable. Even if intellectually we think we agree with equality, it's still going to be uncomfortable because it's different. You know, one of the common reactions that I hear this and that I hear a lot, uh, in this conversation, um, is it's it's a negative reaction and it goes something like this it's something like well you know, listen this is just progressivism you're capitulating to cultural norms this is a product of the feminist agenda you're twisting scripture um and and, and really i just wish i understand disagreement and i and i i i get i mean i have friends i have lots of friends actually who are not egalitarian and and their marriages are fine and they're you know and we're good friends Mm -hmm. but we disagree on this and and but for whatever reason when we start using those terms right and and the more you can like slap on the better like the more you can like rack up your hit points or something uh, it's just it is just so unhelpful like the 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 pejorative labels basically boxing your your quote opponent uh you know by by slapping him with all these labels and negative connotations and whatnot I mean, it's just, it's just a conversation stopper. So I'm wondering when people do react that way and, and you're, and you're, you're getting this pushback, how do you, how do you, uh, sort of explain, no, like I'm, I'm actually, you know, sort of in the, I'm in the evangelical stream. I have a high view of scripture and, and no, it is not my rebellion that led me to this position. It's actually the Bible. How how do you walk people through that? Well, sometimes I start with my story um, and talk about how, you know, I didn't know this was a debate and it got brought up to me and it caused me years and years of studying and studying books, studying scripture, talking to pastors, talking to anyone who would talk to me, really um, praying and crying over this topic to come to the conclusion that I did um, and for me, I really, you know, I I read both sides, right? I read complementarian theology ri- written by complementarians. I read egalitarian theology written by egalitarians. And, and, you know, I've read all the arguments. And honestly, both sides have really good scriptural support for what they believe. And I kind of saw that. Um, but for me, it came down to one major thing, which was the life of Jesus. Hmm. And I look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I read about Jesus, and I see Jesus told a woman to spread the good news of his resurrection, John 20. But many in the church won't let a woman preach that same message from a pulpit. I look at the life of Jesus, and I see Jesus discipled women in Luke chapter 10. But many teach that this is somehow dangerous for male pastors to do. I look at the life of Jesus and I see Jesus depended on the financial provision of women for the welfare of his ministry in Luke chapter 8. But many in the church teach that men are the sole providers in Christian communities and money is a men's thing. Jesus used female examples in his teaching, Luke 15, and spoke about women in his stories, Luke 13. But one popular preacher in particular teaches that Christianity is supposed to have a masculine feel. Wow. Um, wow. Even even mm. down to the... the That's Christmas. not problematic. <laughs> yeah. 
Even down to the Christmas story itself, you know, a young woman carries the body and blood of Jesus within her own body for nine months, but some in the church won't let a woman serve communion and service. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing of looking at Jesus and the church, the difference was just so striking and it just didn't add up for me. And it was scriptures, yes, but mostly the scriptures that talk about the life of Jesus that really that really led me to believe in the equality of women, even down to the fact that Jesus denied there was hierarchy in his kingdom in Matthew 20. And mm, yeah. yet we're teaching that there's hierarchy between yeah. men and women. Yeah. Um, Jesus even said, you know, the leaders in this world exercise authority over each other, but it will not be so with you. And yet this whole conversation is who gets authority and who gets to exercise it over whom. And so for me, that's fine. I don't think everyone's going to believe me that I came to this because of the Bible. Um, But the Bible is everything to me. I mean, I'm a preacher. (laughs) That's that's the book I spend the most time in. Um, That's the thing that I want to become beloved to my congregation. That's that's what I want to inform their lives and inform my life. Um, and like you said, these these terms can be helpful in an academic sense in defining differences between people. But in conversations in the church, they aren't too helpful because in reality, people are not usually fully egalitarian or fully complementarian. They're somewhere in between. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so if you can label someone complementarian or egalitarian, that means you don't have to listen to them because you already know everything they believe. Um, yeah. So instead of doing that, if we would simply listen, um, simply listen to people's stories, I think we would learn a lot more. and We'd have a more accurate view of how they even got there or even what they believe. Sometimes people use terms in a different way than you do. So you would have no idea what they meant by complementarian or egalitarian until you asked. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a really good point. You know, one of the, I've, I've read, I've read, I've tried to read some on both sides. I finished um, Philip Barton Payne's book, One in Christ, that which mm-hmm. was just, wow, that was awesome. Yeah. Um, I did buy, I have Grudem's book right here, the like 36 and a half pound evangelical <laughs> feminism and biblical truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got that one here. And, and one of the things that, 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 that it just struck me as kind of odd is I hear often with the role distinction is that God, um, has, <laughs> there is something about the essential nature of men that just makes them better suited for, for leadership. And, right. and, and I'll, and I'll hear like, uh, Grudem's book will talk about, you know, maybe it's because, Men aren't quite as you know re- relational, and, and so they're they're less inclined to uh, like let heresy in because you know they're going to cut off a relationship before they like water down the truth. Have you <laughs> heard this line of thinking? Oh yeah, I've read all yeah. of Gruden stuff. Yeah. So so I hear that, but but then but then there's there's no question like nothing is problematic about like maybe a man's tendency to like, like anger or like the, the negative side of the right the, of a man of, of, of even it. I mean, let's just go ahead and if we, even if we grant that like male nature is actually a thing, um, 
yeah, then then like there's no talk of the negative side of it, uh, sure. which is kind of mind blowing to me. Um, right, because uh, men certainly aren't emotional, reactionary, judgmental, easily angered, upset. Yeah, go to so, any any professional right. sporting event, you will never see any. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> nothing but cool um, rationality. Absolutely, yeah, very cool and <laughs> logical. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, Grudem's an interesting one to bring up, especially after we just talked about listening to people. Um, the title of his, he has two books <clears throat> in which the words evangelical feminism are in the title. And Grudem uses that term to describe egalitarians, and he refuses to use the term egalitarian. Yeah. Um, he refuses to listen wow. to egalitarian. He, he admitted, self-admittedly says they call themselves something, but I believe they are something different. So I'm going to yeah. call them by what I believe they are, which is he creates the term evangelical feminist in a derogatory way. It has been used in a different way. Yeah. He didn't create it. But, um, so it's interesting because he's actually an example of someone who I think could benefit. His, I think his academic work could benefit from surrounding himself with egalitarians. Um, I think if he would listen... Uh, I, th I think his work, in my opinion, one of the downfalls of his work um, or the weak points is that he sets up a lot of straw man arguments. Mm -hmm. um, he's he puts words in egalitarians' mouths, and then you know tears the arguments down. Yeah. Um, but what I do think Grudem does well is that he um, he takes he's very honest with his opinions. Uh, mm -hmm. he, like you said, he flat out says that he thinks that men are more, are created to be better at things like leading, um, than women are. Uh, and I, I appreciate that he is honest when he says that. Um, and it comes across definitely, even in his systematic theology book, uh, yeah. he talks a lot about men and women in that as well. But this, his view of gender and of men and women and how they relate to each other is actually like one of the founding building blocks of his entire theology, if you read his systematic theology. So he has to make that work or else everything else crumbles. So he yeah. writes very strongly <laughs> against egalitarianism because he's made his whole career um, on a theology that's built on top of that. He even He's one of the theologians who has been accused of heresy. I mean, which one hasn't, right? But yeah. um, he's been accused of heresy because of his teachings on the Trinity. And he believes in the role distinctions of men and women so strongly that he then places role distinctions on the Trinity and a hierarchy amongst them, saying that they're not fully one and equal, but that the Father mm. has authority over the Son, who has authority over the Spirit, and that there's a clear hierarchy, which throughout church history has been a heresy that's come up and been shot down. Um, but so that's, that's come up in Grudem's work, which I find kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and obviously, I mean, we're all, you know, it, he's not in the room and, and, and folks should, should read his book if they really want to understand it. I mean, it, it is important in these conversations. Uh, I think having relationships is really the only thing that keeps, that keeps, the other side from becoming just a straw man that you can knock down. So you feel better about yourself. It's um, true. You know, so it's I am um, definitely recommend and, people read, read, read that book, but uh, yeah, read the book and then read there's a, uh, so there's a few people who've written 
if you want to get the full conversation, there's Grudem's books. He also wrote one with John Piper. Um, called I think it's called Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood or something like that. Yeah. Um, and there's also texts written in direct opposition to all those texts by right. Gilbert Bilzekian, uh, called Beyond Sex Roles, and Ron Pierce and um, Rebecca Grutice called Discovering Biblical Equality. So if it's a great lesson in, in church history or evangelical history even to go back and read both sides, all those books, because um, they kind of directly talk to each other, which mm-hmm. is really fascinating. Yeah. Barton and, Barton and Grudem definitely do that, or Barton Payne, I guess. Um, so I, I want to make a shift here. I know we're coming up on time for this fairly quickly, but I feel like we would be, we would just be totally remiss here if we didn't uh, if we didn't hit sort of the classic like what about moves uh you know anybody who's read the bible who's who's familiar with the verses uh there are man there are just some hard bible verses that talk about women um Mm -hmm. and so i'd I'd love to sort of just to feed you a couple and see how you think about them and how you sort of uh interpret them in an egalitarian framework is that all right yeah. We'll see if you're really biblical. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll let you know how, yeah, the verdict. Um, yeah, then we'll, we'll put a survey up. Right. <laughs> no, so, yes, please fire away. All right. So first, first Timothy chapter two, 12 to 15. Uh, this is, this, this is Paul. He talks about how he he's, doesn't permit, or perhaps he's not permitting a woman to have authority. Uh, and then it ends with women being saved through childbearing, which, I mean, everyone pretty much knows what that means. Uh, so <laughs> can you unpack that one for us? <laughs> sure. First uh, Timothy 2.12 is the verse that is perhaps the most often cited to keep women from preaching or teaching or becoming pastors in the church. Um, it's a letter that many people believe the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy when he was at the church at Ephesus. Um, it's an interesting one. And you even kind of hinted at the grammar in the verse itself that sometimes people say, it looks like it's saying, I am not currently allowing women to teach. Um, or some people just say, I don't allow women to teach, but the translation, uh, is actually one of the primary issues with this verse. Um, so there's, it's one, many people use this verse to say all of scripture should be interpreted through this verse and any part of scripture that seems to have a woman teaching or preaching or leading, mm. they aren't really, or they shouldn't have been because first Timothy two twelve says they shouldn't. And that's definitely one way to look at scripture. Another way would be to let scripture speak for itself and allow for the discrepancies. So when you see, you read through the Old Testament and you see women leading and women as being in charge of Israel, even spiritual leaders as prophets, and you let that happen, you say, okay, God doesn't seem to say that that's wrong there, then I guess that's okay. And then you go through the New Testament and you see the equality and and these women leading and preaching and teaching in churches, even Phoebe being a deacon and and delivering and interpreting the letter of Paul to the church at Rome. Um, and you say, okay, I guess that's allowed. And then you get to first Timothy two twelve, and you think, huh, that doesn't seem to fit with everything else I've seen so far. Mm. I wonder why. 
And that's kind of the way that I like to approach scripture. And, and when you do that and you start diving into what what is it about 1 Timothy 2.12 that might not be fitting, you look at original language and you look at grammar and you look at the context of the letter and suddenly things become a little more clear. Um, but for me, I think um, there's a few issues with using this one verse to keep women from doing things that throughout scripture they are doing. <laughs> which is preaching and teaching and leading. Um, one of them is that 1 Timothy 2.12 is perhaps the poorest translated verse in the Bible, wow. um, including the fact that the grant, no one can agree on the grammar. Uh, biblical scholars, even within complementarianism or within egalitarianism, can't agree on what the verse means. So it's not clear. It's actually anything but clear, especially when you get to you know, women being saved in childbirth. Um, And even down to the fact that the word that we translate as authority, I do not permit a woman to lead or have authority over a man. um, That word is only used once in scripture. And so we can't even know what it means in scripture because there's nothing else to base our definition of it on. And so when you look at other texts outside of the scriptural texts that are around the same time, we see this word, which is authentane, and it has all these various meanings, which could mean violence or murder. It could mean, um, it's very, it's very seldom used to talk about real, like just normal authority. And Paul does talk about normal authority in churches elsewhere and doesn't use this word. So it's, it's a really awkward verse that's translated. Uh, other issues are that we don't apply the same hermeneutic to the surrounding verses that we do to 1 Timothy 2.12. Um, in 1 Timothy, Paul tells men that they are not allowed to argue. Wow. But we don't see anyone telling men in the church that they're not allowed to argue, which I think is really interesting. But in the same book, you have people saying, but this verse says women shouldn't teach. So women aren't allowed to teach. But if all scripture is important and God ordained, then shouldn't they be held up to the same standard? But we don't hold all those things to the same standards. We some, for some reason, pick out this one verse. And even uh, the verse just before 1 Timothy 2.12 says that women can't have braided hair or jewelry, but we also don't apply that verse literally. So, there's some bad hermeneutics with applying just this one verse very literally, even though it's a poor translation and we can't figure out what it means, um, but not applying the other ones, which we know means that men are not supposed to argue, which is very interesting, or that they have to raise their hands when they pray. Uh, we're not applying those things um, as literally. Um, this is also, we forget, I think, that this is a personal letter from who we think might be the Apostle Paul to Timothy at a certain church. And so contextual issues will come up. If a pastor is writing to another pastor about an issue at their church, everything is not going to be meant to be applied to every church. They're writing specifically to that one to address certain issues. Um, So there's some issues with applying those corrections that Paul might have to what's going on in that church, to every church. Um, And also, I think it's impossible to put 1 Timothy 2.12 into practice in a consistent or logical way. Um, 
Because like I said, no one can quite agree on what this verse means. And so in some churches, women can't teach to men. In some churches, women simply aren't allowed to teach to men older than 12. Um, In some churches, women can be teachers in high school, but not in college. In some churches, teachers can be college professors, but not pastors to those same age men. No churches apply this consistently because no one can quite agree on what it looks like. Um, so really, that's fascinating. So, so it's a really com- it's it's not a good idea to take one verse that's highly uh, debated that no one can agree on what it means and no one can agree how to apply it and make it your cornerstone of theology on women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so. But it's but again and again it's consistently brought up as the primary verse to keep women from those roles. Um which I just think is it's just lazy in some senses and sad in others. Um but uh yeah, so that's that's my thinking on First Timothy. I think it's really important to study original language and grammar. It's really important to study context. And anyone who teaches you that you're twisting scripture by studying scripture is probably not looking out for your best interest. Mm, Right. Um, Right. So feel free to search that as much as you want. There's a great website. That's Junior Project. Yeah, you can check that out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Make your plug. We Um, have at least six blogs just on that verse. um, Love it. People want to look that. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, so the conversation around headship, yeah, um, with that that core scripture in First Corinthians eleven, <laughs> verse three. Uh, also, Paul, we think, writing to the church in Corinth. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of a woman, and that God is the head of Christ. And then also in in Ephesians five, um, we have another passage there. Can you can you give us some kind of egalitarian insight into? the headship discussion? Yeah. um, I'll start by referencing, I I did a sermon on uh, what it means for Jesus to be the head. uh, And it's, it can be found on our resources page on the junior project, um, juniorproject.com, which would give a lot more than I can give here. Um, But like you said, you pointed out the, the primary two spots that it gets brought up about, male headship. Um, They're two very different verses from each other. But uh, first of all, our idea of leadership. So we assume in the evangelical church that the Bible says that men are to lead their wives, but that language is actually not in scripture. All of that comes from this idea of head, men being the head. Even the word headship is not in scripture. It's not a noun in that way. It doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't an ideology. It's men as a head and it's the word kafale for literal head. Um, And Jesus is the head, the kafale of the church. So everything about men leading and men being in charge comes from this idea of headship, this idea of head in in the Bible. But it's all from interpretation because in our language in 21st century American English head means leadership. We talk about the head of an organization or the head of a company. um, But it doesn't mean head does not mean that in every language. 
uh, French, for example, has no connotation of leadership with the word head. Um, and a lot of people argue that biblical Greek doesn't either. So when you're reading this and it says Jesus is the head of the church, you're wondering, well, if it doesn't mean leadership, then what does it mean? And a lot of scholars think that it actually means source, like the head right. source of a river, um, mm, yeah. which I'm sure you all have read about. Uh, so this idea that Jesus is the beginning, the very impetus, the thing from which the church stems. Jesus is the source of the church. And in Genesis, the man was created first, and so the man was the source of the woman. It was the the stuff from which she was taken so that they couldn't be accused of being different, different uh, beings, different creatures. They were from the same stuff. Um, so in that sense, that makes a lot of sense, especially in 1 Corinthians, which talks about uh, Jesus being the head of the church and man being the head of woman, and then ends that whole section by saying, but now every man comes from a woman and all things come from God. Wow. So that's awesome. it really gives this, like, if it wasn't talking about source, why does it end with the idea of source? And if it's talking about leadership, but then ends with, but don't be deceived because now every man comes from a woman and all things comes from God, then isn't it even saying, don't be confused into thinking this means leadership. Huh. Um, hmm. So context really matters. And we really need to dive into what these words might mean. Um, Ephesians 5 is really interesting because it's specifically talking about the marriage relationship, not talking about um, men and women in general in the church or in society. And the idea of man as the head of the household really comes from Ephesians 5. But even that phrase, man as the head of the household, is not in Scripture. I mean, it just gets huh. me all these things we think are in scripture and then you actually read it and they're not there, um, which is so mm. interesting because uh, culture really has a huge, huge say on what we think. And, um, you know, there's this, uh, I did my grad work in London and I was sitting in a bus in traffic and I looked up and there was this billboard that said, you're not in traffic, you are traffic. <laughs> and, and I I loved that and I thought you know that's like culture wow in yeah church, right like in the church we tend to think culture bad church good culture is supposed to be yeah, completely yeah. separate from church gotta be counterculture gotta fight Out the culture there. yeah, right. yeah sure. exactly but we right. forget that we're not in culture we are culture we are a direct result of our culture because culture decides the jobs that are available, the clothes we wear, the kinds of homes we live in, the way our families are structured, like we are a part of culture and we are, and we directly influence it. Um, so even, even the fact that our Christian music is, you know, based on rock music, you know, it's like we are culture and we can't completely right, separate right. that. Um, but this, this cultural idea of man as the head of the household and, the phrase in Ephesians 5 is that the man is the husband is the head of the wife, not that the husband is the head of the household, um, which is a really important distinction because, again, if it's talking about source, then that makes sense. It's going back to Genesis, alluding back to the creation. The husband is the source of the wife. Um, and even in a, in a culture that, like 
like the Apostle Paul would be writing to in Ephesians, um, it's a patriarchal culture even more than ours. Women oftentimes didn't work outside the home. They had no way of providing for themselves. So the husband really was the source of life for the wife. She couldn't have a life outside of being married or outside of her father's home because men were the ones who earned money and, and a living. Um, so that even that is a really interesting concept, which is very different from our culture where women don't have to get married to survive. Um, but beyond that, uh, Ephesians 5 is a very interesting um a very interesting chapter to base an idea of male leadership on because the the main verb is not actually found. The main Greek verb, if you look at this outside of our English translation, but to look at um, look at Ephesians five in Greek, uh, I'm going to pull it up here so I can look at it directly in Greek. <clears throat> um, but. What's really interesting about the grammar is that we've changed it to be more understandable in English, but the grammar in in Greek starts differently. So we look at this and we think that the main verb here is uh, wives submit to your husbands. Hmm. But yeah. really, <laughs> the main verse doesn't even appear in chapter five. It appears or it doesn't appear in chapter five, verse 20. It appears earlier when Paul says, be filled with the spirit. Do not get drunk, but be filled with the spirit. Ephesians 5, 18. That's actually the primary verb in this. It's the only verb in this section of scripture. Be filled with the spirit. So this is the wow. primary idea that Paul is talking about in this whole book. Doesn't that change it already? Totally. It's, it's so yeah. interesting. So if all of our Bibles would move the little titles we've added to just before verse 18, and instead of saying rules of Christian households said, be filled with the Spirit, that would be a little more accurate. Um, so Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. And then all the other things we've translated as verbs in our English that follow that are actually um, playing on describing um, the verb that came before. They're called participles, if you go back to your grammar days, um, grammar school days. But so it says, be filled with the spirit. How do you do that? By speaking to one another in, in, uh, by, in songs, by singing psalms to the Lord, by making music, by giving thanks to the Lord, and by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 20, 21. Oh, yeah. So how are you filled with the spirit? By submitting to one another. And then you have some more explanations. Who's supposed to submit to one another? Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. Children submit to your parents. Parents love your children. Slaves submit to your masters. And probably the biggest and most controversial part, masters treat your slaves well. But all of these grammatically follow the participle submit to one another. So all of them are to be understood according to Greek grammar as people submitting to one another. Husbands to wives, wives wow. to husbands, children to parents, parents to children, slaves to masters, masters to slaves. Well, that's that's just totally, so, I mean, totally reframes it. Wow. It totally does. And it's hard to do simply over audio. Um, yeah. Showing it, <laughs> showing it on the screen well. is really helpful. Um, but we have a post that has a really good um, slide, I think, on there. 
I think it's called How Paul Turns Headship on Its Head. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I saw that, that one. I saw that one. Yeah, yeah it's written by a really awesome yeah, we'll author. To it for sure. He he has a whole slide on there. I think that's the one that he has it where he kind of breaks this down and makes it easy to see. Um, but our English translations just don't translate that well. And our language is different than Greek. And the translators are doing the best they can trying to make it understandable. But this gives a very different idea. It, it switches it from thinking that Ephesians 5 is all about women submitting and men leading to everyone being called to be filled with the Spirit and everyone being called to submit. And it's, right. it's so different. So it's hard because I'm like, yeah, people tell me I twist Scripture. But really, I only come to this conclusion by digging further into Scripture, by well, learning right. the language, by learning the grammar, and not by simply <laughs> taking the translator's opinions, not by simply taking the pastor's opinion but looking at the scriptures and asking God for help and, you know, going to seminary and trying to find this stuff out for myself. Um, and I'm not the first person who said this. That's not at all what I'm trying to say, but there's lots of people who've right. written about this. Um, so, so this idea of headship in our culture, we really think that that means leadership. So when we read it in English, we think that's what it means. But even the grammar, if you look you know, into the original language seems to be saying something else. Because if it meant leadership, why would it be under mutual submission? Mm. Um, right. Yeah. Is it, so I think one of the, well, this is a theme that's come up, I think, time and time again on the podcast is this idea there's a biblical view and there's an unbiblical yeah. view. And the, the solution is aligning yourself with the biblical view. And yet the reality as you unpack it, is there are biblical views right. and coming from people that are equally interested in upholding the integrity of scripture and believe it to be inspired and believe it to be <clears throat> useful and, uh, and that we can come to different conclusions. And just in the interest of time, I want to shift kind of in a final thought um, and, and just a final point in question. So one of the things that we talk about or that we've talked about um, and using a lot of kind of work of of uh, of Jonathan Haidt and others is a lot of the a lot of times the the hindrances to helpful discussion around this topic in particular and of course others is is the different perspectives from which those making the arguments think about what's right and wrong so so for example <clears throat> for egalitarians it's a it's a justice issue issue it's what well, women deserve equal rights, equal, you know, representation, opportunity. It's it, this is unjust, and it's a, the injustice, you know, against women needs to be corrected. Complementarianism is a is an unjust, uh, you know, point of view. But for complementarians, it's often viewed as as an authority issue or a moral issue, right? Is that well, it's just really a matter of a, a needing to to submit to authority, the authority of the scripture, the authority of your pastor, the authority of, uh, you know, to me, uh, of men, etc. So that all being said, we bring not only our opinions, but we bring our value judgments on morality and, and much, you know, and much more to the table in community. But in, on this podcast, we're particularly interested in how folks with differing opinions 
with these different perspectives and diversity can actually exist, not only exist, but thrive together in community um, despite ha- and have these close relationships despite the disagreements. So all of that to say, do, do, you, do, do you have close relationships with folks that are just totally in disagreement with you, albeit in a, you know, while, while still upholding some level of integrity to, to scripture and are also interested in, in your opinion and can hold some of the tension? And what is your kind of thought for those who are maybe in communities where this is a really contentious issue and how do we actually begin to bridge the gap yeah. and, um, you know, and grow out of this together? That's a great, a great question. Um, well, I think everyone has a family member or a friend who disagrees with them on this issue. It's a, there's a pretty diverse, uh, belief system in this. And, you know, so I fall into that category as well. I have family members, in-laws and family members, you know, people on both sides that disagree with me on this issue. Um, we, have with some of them, I've talked to, to them about it long before I felt a call to ministry myself, but was simply advocating uh, for egalitarianism on the junior project. And um, it's, it, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, we talked to so many uh, people, and that's really one of the questions they ask us on our blog is, how do I function with this where I've become egalitarian, but my husband's complementarian? Oh, wow. yeah. Or how do I do this? I feel called to ministry, but my parents are complementarian and think I shouldn't. Um, it's a, mm. it's a really big thing. And so the acknowledgement that this is the world we live in, where we're not really just surrounded by people we agree with. Um, and we have to learn how to be in relationship and to be loving and to seek the good for each other, even when we disagree. And it's really hard. And it's part of the messiness of church right right? like we would hope that yeah like we would hope that churches are are places that are filled with people with differing political views and differing um cultural backgrounds and differing theological views on things that aren't um things that aren't as big as jesus and loving one another and um and doing church together so we would hope that we can live in a space, allow for a space where we can disagree even passionately, but to show love and to listen. Um, but it's really hard. And in my own life, so I haven't been a pastor for long. Um, I've had many friends who we don't hold the same, um, view on this and that's fine. We, don't talk about it a lot or we tease each other about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but since being a pastor, I've been invited into this um, pastor's prayer group that meets quarterly in our town. And our town is pretty big. Well, our county is about 500,000 people and we have more churches per capita than Oklahoma City. Wow. So there's a lot of churches <laughs> And there's a group wow. of pastors that get that. together, only lead pastors. We get together and we pray for the city and for our congregations. And so I've been invited into that since stepping into this role, which has been really my first experience being in a Christian setting with people who don't really agree I should be in the role. Um, and for the most part, people were really, um, were, not, were not overtly negative. 
only a few were warm. Um, but I know it's uncomfortable, so I try to be really gracious yeah, as I meet right. these people. Um, one did offer up kind of a passive aggressive prayer um, about, you know, about like, <laughs> God, women are God stepping into me. these roles. Please keep them from wow, being. Wow, that's not passive at um, all. What? <laughs> Please help the person. God's telling me the person yeah. next to me needs to. But um, for the most part, I think I think people just really want connection, right? Like that's what we're made for. We are. Yeah. We're yeah. made as communal beings. We are made for community, and I think if we can remember that, that's what we are created for, um, and push past the uncomfortableness or even the flat-out hurt or aggression towards you. Um, and extend the hand of love and grace and fellowship. I think we can start building something better for this church, a better a better vision for what the church can be, um, more like what Jesus was trying to build. But it is hard. It's really, it's really difficult, especially when people are really afraid of you as a female pastor. <laughs> um, so <laughs> you have to be right. really gracious. Yeah. <laughs> really humble yeah. so uh, yeah i mean kate you've been really just gracious and humble with us tonight taking time with us and 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 uh walking through the passages and the history i've just really enjoyed this conversation thank you for spending time with us well thank you both it's been great yeah. to talk with you yeah it's been it's been great and we'd like to just give a, a kind of a any other plugs that you want to make resources website other things you'd point folks to obviously the junior project will will link all of that yeah below anything no shame else to you plug just want your to highlight for sure. you just plug yourself <laughs> well really it's a community uh, effort uh, christians for biblical equality cbeinternational.org they're probably the flagship egalitarian organization they do great stuff they have a blog they have an academic journal they have a bookstore i would say check out christians for biblical equality uh, there's a theologian in australia named marg and her last name is M-O-W-C-Z-K-O. So it's margmouseco.com. And her website is absolutely fantastic. Her work is um, just top-notch on all of this kind of stuff. Um, Other than that, Craig Keener's book on Paul, Women, and Wives and Cynthia Westfall's book on Paul and Gender are two really good ones for those uh, difficult passages. Excellent. Awesome. Thanks, Kate. We'll hang tight for two seconds here for our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. Great to have you. Uh, and and feel free to subscribe if you haven't. Podbean, iTunes, elsewhere. And uh, looking forward to having now. you. Yes, yeah, Spotify now too. We really upped our game. We made it. Uh, We've arrived. We, dude, we are the real deal. And I realized it was just a click of a button, um, but I, I did Gosh. it. Uh, my buddy's like, why are you on Spotify? I'm like, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Spotify for all you Spotify subscribers out there. I am. Thank you guys. Great having you.